Take your Bibles, turn to Romans 8. Lectio continua. Uh, If you don't know what that means, that's okay because it's Latin. Uh, It's a term that describes uh, uh, our approach to preaching at Christ Ridge. It basically just means we start at the beginning of a book and we go all the way through. We don't take breaks. We don't skip around. Uh, There are many good theological reasons to preach through the Bible that way. Uh, A very minor reason to do it is it's helpful for us to know what we're preaching on week by week. So a week and a half ago, I said, okay, time to decide what I'm preaching on, so I'll flip through the Bible and I'll pick out something right quick. (laughs) And after an hour and a half, I had all four options, and I said, okay, let's go back to the old paths. So we're going to do, I'm calling it a sometime series in Romans 8 because I'm only sometimes preaching in the evenings, and sometimes I'll be preaching on other things as well. Sermons that I prepared for other reasons, but uh, we'll go through Romans 8 in the next year or so. Uh, We'll start in verse 1. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh... Set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's, give, let's ask God for understanding as we come to his word. Our, our Father, this passage both uh, convicts us and comforts us. For we come here to you knowing that we are guilty of setting our minds on the flesh. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And for that, we deserve your displeasure. But we also take great comfort in knowing that we come to you as people who are not condemned. For we come pleading the blood of Christ to you, knowing that Christ has been the perfect payment for our sin, and we give you great praise for that. Father, now we come to you people that need to grow, and we have so far to go. Father, would you use your word to further our growth? May we know you better, may we love you better, and have a clear vision for how you would have us then live from this passage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you catch the highlights from a certain political convention a couple weeks ago? I won't say which group it was because that's not the point. The point is that this convention was on news media and social media for a couple of breakdowns in protocol. The breakdowns in protocol led to people getting triggered. In one case, a delegate exhorted the floor, please do not use gendered language to address everyone. When I saw that clip, I thought, gendered language, what's he talking about? It took my third watch until I realized, oh, the last speaker had said, you guys. So I said, okay, you guys, keep away from that. This kind of behavior makes us laugh, and maybe it makes us cry a little bit on the inside, too. 
This kind of behavior is written off by us as outrageous and maybe absurd. We ask ourselves, what is the world coming to, right? I mean, people seem to go crazier by the minute. But how different are these people from us? On the surface, this kind of behavior might strike us as lunacy. But I think what's really going on is a response to a common problem. That problem is simply the problem of guilt. The problem of guilt, that internal sense that we're not okay as we are. That something's amiss, that we're not as we're supposed to be. When we're faced with a problem of guilt, we have several options. Option taken by the folks at this convention is the response of flight. In other words, don't tell me there's anything wrong with me. Let me define my own reality, let me define my own identity, and don't get in my way. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. Many in our world today are responding to the problem of guilt by flight, but others respond by fighting the guilt. I think that's what false religion is all about. It's this idea of I can fight the guilt by my own religious good deeds. If I follow the five pillars of Islam or run the treadmill of the seven sacraments or if I make sacrifices to the gods or just live a good life, I can know I'm not so bad. As we come to our text in Romans 8, we find the Apostle Paul wrestling with the same problem of guilt and sin in his own life. We stay back, uh, step back and take um, uh, a wide view of Romans. We see chapters 1 through 3 discusses this universal problem of guilt. All are guilty before God, Jew and Greek alike. Chapters 4 through 6 discusses the solution to our guilt found in the gospel, in this great doctrine of justification by faith alone. This great teaching that if we put our faith, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we can be declared not guilty. In chapter 7, though, we come back to the same problem. Paul is reflecting on the fact that in spite of God's provision of justification, he's still guilty of ongoing sin. And this is an experience we all have as Christians, that in spite of what God has done for us, we're still guilty of ongoing sin. We're compromised. We find a great resistance to the law of God in our own hearts. We're unable to obey God as we would like. And this reflection leads Paul to cry out at the end of chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? But immediately we're taken back to the hope of the gospel. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul remembers that the problem of guilt has been solved. God has solved it in Christ, but we're left with this dilemma. What do we do with the fact that on the one hand, we have real, permanent, irrevocable forgiveness, and on the other hand, we're still us. We're still broken on the inside. We still serve the law of sin, as Paul puts it. So what do we do with this tension? That's the big question before us in Romans 8. And and as we look at Romans 8, Paul's answer in a word is the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Walk By the Spirit. Set your minds on the Spirit. Paul hammers this idea home in the first half of Romans 8. Fourteen times in the first 17 verses, he makes reference to the Holy Spirit's role in our Christian life. So tonight I've got four points. Figure what kind of seminary student would I be if I didn't think I could break all the rules. So four points, not three. First, we're going to look at the possibility of living according to the Spirit. Second, we'll see the result of living according to the Spirit. Third, we'll see the method of living according to Spirit. And finally, we'll see the stakes of living according to the Spirit. So first, the possibility of living according to the Spirit. 
Verse 1 is a verse that I hope many of us know and love already. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a verse I commend you to memorize, to recite, to bring to mind in times of discouragement when we fall into the power of temptation. But I want you to notice there's more of a punch to it than, than there is all by itself. Notice the therefore at the beginning of the verse. You know the old saying when you come to a text and you see a therefore, you ask yourself, say it with me, what's the therefore, therefore, very good, thank you. <laughs> now if you don't know better, you might expect that Paul has just expounded a really great gospel truth, right? Maybe he said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, there's therefore now no condemnation. That would make sense to us. But that's not what Paul says. What does he say? Look at chapter 7, 25. The end says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's basically saying, I want to serve God, but I don't. Therefore, I'm not condemned. And that strikes us as odd, but brothers and sisters, that is the logic of the gospel. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Him, if you've put your faith in Him, your status, your assurance of forgiveness does not depend on your track record. It never has and it never will. Now Paul gives the basis for that confidence in verse 2. And what's interesting is that he brings, again, the law as the reason for our status of no condemnation. But this time it's a different law that he's referring to. Paul's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the Decalogue, right? God's commandments to us. That law can't help us. He's just made that point. The law that Paul is talking about is the law of the spirit of life. When you see law in this case, think power. Think rule. The rule of a great king. The power of the spirit, the rule of the spirit in your life has set you free. So if we ask, how can we as sinners live according to the Spirit? The answer is because the Spirit has freed you. The Spirit has freed you, and that's why you can live according to Him. Jesus struck a death blow against sin on the cross by becoming a man and living as a man, obeying God as a man, and paying the penalty for sin as a man. Jesus condemned your sin. Jesus signed a death warrant for your sin. And the Spirit is His executioner. So why do we go back to the gospel when we talk about living according to the Spirit? The gospel sets us on the right trajectory. What's maybe one of the most powerful tactics that Satan has when he tempts you? I don't know about you, but I found a very powerful tactic that it's pointless to resist. Resistance is futile. You're too weak. You've fallen too many times. It's pointless to resist. It's just going to happen again, so why fight back? But friends, if we have been freed by the Spirit, that lie that that is never true. That is a lie. Because holiness is possible. Living by the Spirit is possible. We need to keep that fixed in our mind. So that's our first point. Living by the Spirit is possible because the Spirit has freed us from sin's power. So what's our second point? The result of living according to the Spirit. Look at verse 4. Why did God send His own Son? Why did God free us from sin? in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He might say, wait a minute, I thought we'd just been saying that we can't keep the law. I thought Paul had been saying that our problem is we still sin. How can the law be fulfilled in us? But I want you to notice the way that Paul puts it. 
It's important to see that Paul does not say, we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. That wouldn't put the emphasis in the right place. He says the law is fulfilled in us, but who does the fulfilling? At the end of the day, it's the Spirit. The Spirit makes it happen. The Spirit is the agent of our sanctification, but here's where maybe we get off track. When we think of God's grace to us, God's forgiveness to us in Christ, the freedom and the spirit that he's giving us, we might think, gee, I guess I don't have a part to play. I guess I can just let go and let God and do my own thing. And that sounds silly, but I've read books that say as much. And I want you to notice that last part of verse 4. Who gets to have the law fulfilled in them? Who gets that privilege? It's those who participate. It's those who walk by the Spirit, those who cooperate. My pastor in college put it this way. Sanctification, the process of being made holy, of being made like Jesus, sanctification is guaranteed, but it's not automatic. It's a work of God, and because it's a work of God, it's going to be carried out, but it's not carried out without us. We just read Philippians 2 where Paul puts it another way. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Do you see the interplay? God sanctifies us through our cooperation in Him and with Him. I like to think about it this way. Imagine you're shopping for groceries at Harris Teeter and a man comes up to you and he's dressed kind of funny. And he says, I've got great news for you. I'm from the future. Time travel was invented in 2048. And in 2022, you're winning the lottery, $50 million million jackpot, congratulations. How would you respond to that? And be clear, kids, if a time traveler comes up to you in Harris Theater, you find your parents. But beside that, I don't know about you, but if I find out I'm winning the lottery in 2022, come 2022, I'm buying a ticket, right? Because if the victory's been guaranteed for me, I want to do everything I can to make that happen. And the question is, if we know the Spirit is going to make us holy through our participation, how can we participate? That brings us to our third point. We see the method of living according to the Spirit. There are a lot of things that Christians in our world disagree on, but one of the big ones is, what is the secret to living out the Christian life? What's the secret to real change? Some people say it's about engaging the will, right? So we make resolutions and we get in accountability groups. We discipline ourselves. If we grit our teeth hard enough, that's how change happens. Other Christians will say it's about engaging the emotions. So if we can get people to have a dramatic encounter with God, maybe with the help of some well-crafted rock music, that's how we'll get people to change. But the focus in verse 5 is not the will or the emotions, It's the mind. It's the mind. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The result of sanctification is a changed action and changed emotion, but it begins with a change of mind. So what does it mean to be spiritually minded? That's a thing we talk about, right? We all want to be spiritually minded. We want to have spiritual mindedness as a quality that defines us. I think often we assume that being spiritually minded is being concerned with spiritual things. So if I want to be spiritually minded, I need to read the Puritans and not novels or comic books. And I need to listen to sermons or hymns in my car instead of talk radio or secular music. If 
I want to be spiritually minded, I can't have hobbies because I don't want to do worldly stuff. And spiritual mindedness does involve the use of our time and what we do, but that's not Paul's main point. Look at the contrast Paul sets up. Mind on the spirit versus mind on the flesh. When he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the physical stuff that our bodies are made of. That, that's not the flesh. No, Paul is talking about our sinful nature. The flesh is our old self, our old tendencies to rebel against God. So to set the mind on the flesh is literally to think godlessly, to think that there is no God, to think that there is no God who requires anything of me, to think that I can live as I please because there's no one holding me accountable. Do you know how much energy it takes to think that way? Not much. That's why Paul says the result of setting the mind on the flesh is death. Death is the natural course of things in this world. It's the natural course our bodies take if we don't eat or drink. It happens quite quickly, sadly. And in the same way, setting the mind on the flesh is still natural to us. It's what happens when we let our minds run unhindered. They go off the rails into sin like a shopping cart with a bad wheel. So what does it mean to be spiritually minded? It means intentionally thinking in ways that are God-centered, God-honoring. Spiritually minded people ask questions like, how can I best honor the Lord when my boss isn't behind my shoulder? How can I be like Jesus Now I treat my younger siblings? How would the Lord have me respond when I get cut off on the highway? Not that any of you have that problem ever. <laughs> But spiritual mindedness isn't just about morality. No, Jesus said the Spirit's role is to bring to remembrance everything that he taught us. So spiritual mindedness is thinking about Jesus, thinking about who Jesus is, thinking about who Jesus is for us and who we are because of him. That's true spiritual mindedness. That's the method of living by the Spirit. So we've seen the possibility... Living according to the Spirit. We see the result. Living according to the Spirit. We've seen the method of living according to the Spirit. And lastly, what are the stakes? Living according to the Spirit. Paul draws a clear line in the sand in verse 6. Flesh and the Spirit are like oil and water, right? They don't mix. Can't take flesh and Spirit and combine them and create a third thing in between the two. It doesn't work that way. And we want to try to find some compromise between the two, and we like to look for escape routes, exception clauses in God's commandments. But why do we try to find compromise between the flesh and the spirit? Why would we ever try to seek peace between the two? Maybe the answer is that we don't understand what's at stake. We think that living according to our old nature isn't all that bad, and cooperating with the spirit isn't all that great. But look at what's at stake here. The consequence of setting the mind on the flesh is not pain or discipline or punishment, but it's death. To set the mind on the flesh, to live according to our sin nature is death. On the other hand, setting the mind on the spirit is real and true life. Not just life, but also peace. Here and now, real peace. Not life and peace in a distant future, in a distant place, but life and peace right now. If we live according to the spirit. So why does Paul draw this contrast? We have to remember that Paul is not writing some abstract theological treatise, right? He's writing to real Roman Christians and to us. 
for our encouragement. And maybe it sounds like he's warning us here, that he's trying to spook us into spiritual mindedness. I don't know if you felt maybe a bit of a change in mood when we read the text earlier. Because the first four verses are great. No condemnation, freedom in the spirit, law being fulfilled. I I love that. I like to hear about that. I I don't like to hear verse 7. That the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now we're not thinking such happy thoughts, are we? We have to remember that Paul is speaking to Christians who are in a battle, right? We all are. We all deal with this tension between our old nature pulling us towards sin and the Spirit leading us towards righteousness. And in that battle, we need all the help that we can get. The help that God is giving us here is a reminder of the trajectory that we set ourselves on when we set our minds on the flesh. In the short run, sin might not feel that bad, but it leads to death. I was working in college ministry, and one of my goals was to ensure that students were getting plugged into a good local church. Uh, And I had one student who said he was a Christian, but he wasn't going anywhere on Sunday, and we talked about it. The basic argument I heard was, if I have a relationship with Jesus, why do I need the church? If you think about it, the question beneath that question is, if I'm saved, why can't I just live however I want, right? Why can't I just live as I please? Why would I push myself in any way? And one of the last things I said to him, and this is what I tried to say at least, was if you don't embrace the church, if you don't embrace the means that God has given you to grow, there will come a day when you won't want Jesus either. Now the good news is, if you are in Christ, that will never happen. God won't let that happen. God never leaves his projects of redemption undone. The question though is, and we got at it this morning, is how fast do we want to be completed? Do we want a bumpy road to glory? Do we want to enter glory with bruises and scrapes and scars from having to bear God's discipline? Or do we want life and peace now? If you remember, I began this sermon by poking some fun at some of the quirks of a convention. How far astray you go when you deny the problem of guilt. In our day and age, we we hear things along the lines of be who you are, right? Let the kids play. Be yourself. Whoever you are, however you see yourself, go be that. And don't let anyone stop you. And we see the absurdity in that kind of thinking because, well, why should I be who I am if who I am is fatally flawed, right? But I think in a sense that's how we can sum up the message of this opening section of Romans 8. Christian, be who you are. Because who does God say that we are? In Christ, we are not condemned. In Christ, we're free from sin and death. In Christ, the law of God is being fulfilled in you. And your job is to be who you are. Not who you are as far as your old self is concerned, but who the Spirit is making you to be. So cooperate with the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Has the Spirit been given to you? Has He changed your heart? Has He convicted you of sin and shown you Christ and given you faith in His work to free you? If so, then set your minds on those things. Set your mind on Him. When we do that, we're able to do something really special. In the last point, look at the end of verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But what's the flip side? Those who walk by the Spirit can and do please God. We can please God. So let us count it our greatest privilege to do that very thing. 
Let us who have been freed from sin's guilt and power not resist the Spirit, but walk by Him. And in doing so, please our Father and our Savior. Let's pray. Father, you tell us great things in this passage, Lord. We have been, con- we, we have been freed. We are not condemned. We have the Spirit, or oh Lord, may we make use of these great gifts that you have given to us. May we not uh, pause, turn aside on the path of righteousness and sanctification that you have put us on, but let us walk by your Spirit. And in beholding Christ, we may be changed from one degree of glory to another. May that happen sooner rather than later, Lord. We thank you for your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.